0: Welcome to Volume 14 of Next Big Hits, Broadway Bullet. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and we got a lot of great stuff for you this week. It seems, almost by accident, that this has become the Chicago episode. We have Marty Cooper talking about Chicago's 10th anniversary celebration, and on the positive side, we also have Chicago improv duo TJ and Dave, who do one weekend a month here in New York City as well. We have Martha Levy, the artistic director for the legendary Chicago Steppenwolf Theater Company. So a lot of stuff there. We also have an interview and songs from the new musical Striking 12, which is based on The Little Match Girl. We're going to hear a featured song from the interactive musical Piano Bar. We're going to hear from the director and the author of the new adaptation of Great Expectations going on at Theaterworks, And we're going to hear one more song from Simply Sondheim, A 75th Birthday Salute. It's a rare track that he wrote when he was 16. So we've got a lot to get through this week. Remember, if you're listening on iTunes or on your iPod and getting the enhanced version, you can skip through this program like an audio magazine and listen to your favorite segments again. Let's jump into our first interview. That The Little Match Girl would make a musical would probably not be too surprising to many people. But the fact that it's written and executed by a band featuring a violinist, a keyboard player, and a drummer might be. And that is the case with Striking Twelve, the new Groove Lily musical. We have two members of Groove Lily here with us to talk about the show. How are you two doing? Great. Very thank well. You. Thanks, Michael. You want to introduce yourselves and what you're doing with the show and the band?
2: Sure. Uh, I'm Valerie Vagoda. I sing and play a six-string electric violin in Groove Lily. And this is my bandmate Brendan Milburn.
3: I'm her bandmate Brendan Milburn. <laughs> I play keyboards and sing and I am kind of the Scrooge-like character in this show.
2: Oh right, I didn't even mention my roles. Excuse me. (laughs) Uh, I actually play the role of the little match girl. And in the other contemporary story that also goes into the show, I play a woman who comes to the grumpy guy's door and tries to sell him special full-spectrum holiday light bulbs that combat seasonal affective disorder. And
3: naturally, I am surprised and dismayed that that I have a salesperson coming up to my apartment door here in New York City. I think it's inappropriate, and I wish that she would go away. And that's where we start. Okay,
0: before we talk about the show itself, I think we need a little bit of history coming <laughs> after this. So, so what is the history of the band, Groove Lily?
2: The band was started in 1994. I founded it when I came up here from Virginia. And originally it was a seven-piece band. It was the Valerie Vagota Band. It was before I knew Brendan or Jean, And I met Brendan at one of our first gigs. We played at a club called Tramps in June of 94. And he was in the audience. He was introduced by mutual friends. Loved the music, started dropping off tapes at my apartment building, stalking me extremely politely with very good references, and ended up joining the band. And then we realized, as we started to play more out of town, that we really couldn't do it with all those people. Just, you know, the exigencies of paying musicians and being in a vehicle together made it necessary that we pare it down. So we ended up with a trio, and so it was violin, keyboards, and drums. And Um, we fit
3: into a Mazda at the time.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and we ended up doing a lot of touring on college circuit, the folk festival circuit, all sorts of stuff, and tried to make as much sound as we could with three people. So all three of us would sing, and all three of us would play as much as we could on our instruments. And that was the beginning of our band.
0: Yeah. So what was the thought like the transition into thinking, okay, we want to, we got a band here, let's make our band a musical theater event?
3: Well, I. I came to New York in 1993 to go to the New York University Graduate Musical Theater Writing Program, and it was great. It was mighty fine, but I was 22 years old, and New York City scared the... You can say it. It's on the Internet. Okay. (laughs) scared the living crap out of me, and, you know, after after temping and, and being the gopher for a variety of very important and interesting people... I became convinced that I was never, ever, ever going to make it in the theater business, and I should just go home and hang my head. Or at least that's what it felt like sometimes. And then I met this girl and saw her band and thought, oh man, this is the real deal. This is what I forgot about. You can write a song in the afternoon, and then that night you can go play it at a club in the East Village and get an immediate audience response. So I turned my back on the theater and didn't look back for like seven or eight years until Valerie was out on the road with with the Trans-Siberian Orchestra, which is kind of a heavy metal Christmas music spectacular. And she was doing this because we were never able to get very many gigs in November and December and January.
2: By this time, we were in our van touring like crazy. We were doing the indie band thing, 150 shows a night, different city, different city, different city. And we were just doing it for all we were worth.
3: And she was out there with this side project for her because we couldn't get any gigs in those months. And I went to go see it the second year that she did it in December of 2001. And it was kind of a concert with a story that had this sort of holiday theme to it. And I thought, oh, man, we could do this. We could actually be working during this time. So I proposed the idea to my bandmates and to our new friend Rachel Schenken, who was another alumni from the New York Musical Theater Graduate Writing Program. Right. And...
2: It became really clear that people were really looking for something different to do during the holidays. You know, once you've seen The Nutcracker a million times and once you've seen (laughs) The Christmas Carol, you're really looking for something else. And so the Trans-Siberian Orchestra was filling that niche for people. And they were getting people from age four to age 84 to just go crazy about this heartwarming rock Experience.
3: So I tried to talk my bandmates into it. Valerie thought it was a great idea. Rachel Schenken was very excited about yes. the idea of collaborating on a piece of musical theater with a rock band. And Gene, our drummer, thought it was the worst idea he had ever heard of. He just wanted
2: to play the drums. He just wanted to play <laughs> the drums. Now he wants to
3: sing lead all the time and act more than any of us. And now he wants. It's like the band is transformed from a struggling band on the indie circuit to the band that does musical theater. It's completely changed who we are and what we do. We spent eight or 10 years trying to get signed and always getting told, you guys are too theatrical, I'm sorry. It just I, I don't know how to market this with this label, I'm sorry. But, you know, it's nice music.
2: Yeah, because all three of us would sing lead, we would trade off. We had you know, a lot of different styles that come into our sound. I grew up as a classical player. Brendan grew up playing rock and roll piano and, uh, and doing musical theater. And Jean grew up as a real jazz purist. So we have these three different instruments with three different approaches. So what we end up with is not your typical radio-friendly pop band. So we struggled against that for a long time until we finally just kind of gave up and said, Okay, forget it. We're never gonna get signed, but this is the kind of music that we love to make. You know, this is what brings us joy. And then suddenly, once we relaxed and said, Okay, this is who we are, suddenly we, we realized, got signed. Yeah. That that it was gonna be okay and we got signed. We didn't even try.
0: Right. We're <laughs> gonna talk a little bit more, but now might be a time to satiate our listeners' appetite and let them hear a little bit of what the show is about. What song would you like us to play from the CD first?
2: Well, why don't we start with a song that happens right uh, near the the top of the show, which is called Last Day of the Year. And this is where Brendan's character, who is kind of an unhappy wage slave working late on New Year's Eve, is in his office. All right.
4: It'll be another late night. I will get through this winter without a ray of daylight. I volunteered to stay late. There's no need to deny it. Time and a half my pay rate and peace and quiet on the last day of the year. On the last.
0: the show comes together on stage, and um, I guess one of the first questions we'll ask is,
3: have you seen, are you familiar with the new Sondheim productions? We sat in the front row. We were in
2: the, yeah, um, second row.
3: Second row? At Sweeney Todd. We we made pretty fast friends with a guy named Manuel F- Felciano?
2: Felciano? Felciano, yes, the guy who played Tobias, who plays violin in the show.
3: He came to see us do Striking 12 when we did this little itty bitty run at Mars Nova last year, and he loved it, and he said, man, you gotta come see my show. So we did, and-
2: He was great, it was great.
3: It was great. He was great. (laughs) We're psyched to see company. I think we're approaching this a little bit differently because we are musicians. We are musicians who are coming sideways to acting and to storytelling. And as I understand it, pretty much everybody on stage except the bass player and Sweeney Todd was an actor first and secondarily a musician. But that show was brilliant in its conception. It blew me away. The girl who played Joanna, the blonde cellist, lady came to see us on our first preview this time and she loved it.
2: Lauren Molina? My brain is like a sieve. I think that's her name. Yes. Do you
3: think the success
0: of that show helped to get interest in getting your show up for a full off-Broadway mounting? It's possible.
3: I mean, we've been hacking away at this particular project for five years, long before we or or I think most people had heard of Sondheim with instruments on stage.
2: Right. And, And our producer, Nancy Nagel Gibbs of 321 Theatrical Management, signed on to produce us in October 2004, when she saw us at the NAMPT showcase. And I think that was before Sweeney Todd opened.
0: I think so, too. Yeah. yeah. So what is the staging concept like, and the acting the staging with the band on stage playing at the same time with the show?
3: Well, there are three musicians on stage who talk to the audience directly. There's a lot of direct address. They talk to each other, they play their instruments, and only one of them really gets to move around, the electric violinist. But we do our best to make the audience complicit in the storytelling process. We, we invite them to do a lot of imagining, and we think it's working.
2: Yeah. I and mean, the lighting cues help, too. We have basically three stories going on. We have us as the band, ourselves, Valerie, Brendan, and Jean. We have the contemporary story, which includes Brendan as the wage slave, grumpy guy character, me as the light bulb saleswoman, and Jean as various other utility infielder roles. And then we go into the story of the little match girl itself. So through lighting and musical changes and, and encouraging really, everybody to imagine, you yeah. can really put yourself into the three of those stories. And as we go back and forth, it's not linear at all, but we jump back and forth frequently. The Little Match Girl story is such a short story and such a sad story that we really had to leaven it with with other things in between.
0: Now, often with mu- you know, musicals go through many rewrites and right. staging and getting it to work right. I'm assuming you went through some
3: of that with this show as well. Big time. I mean, it's. Okay. The funny thing is though, I, I went back and checked out that uh, the first email that we got from Rachel in January of two thousand and two when we were brainstorming about what would make a good Groove Lily holiday musical, and her brain dump about the Little Match Girl is exactly what the show is it's you know there's there's so much about the show that hasn't changed at all since day one, and it's it's kind of remarkable to look back we We focus in for the past five years we've been focusing in. More and more minutely on very specific itty bitty little things, but I think a person who saw it on stage at the first preview at the Prince Music Theater in November of 2002 would have no trouble recognizing the same show today. I mean, it... Ha- it yeah, the it, structure
2: has not changed very much. And that's that's the brilliance of Rachel Schenken. She's yes, a structure structure
0: gal. No uh, she also direct. And who's directing the show? Ted Sperling.
2: Yeah, he's been with us since the very beginning, and in fact, really helped it exist in the first place. Because when we met him. Shortly before we met Rachel, I believe, he had just gotten the gig as associate artistic director of The Prince Music Theater in Philadelphia and encouraged encouraged us to write the show and have it ready for November before anything had been written. He said, okay, you're booked. I have to fill a season. You got a slot. Go for it. Up until
3: that point, we were planning on just writing a show that we could do in all the same venues we'd already been playing, but calling them up on the phone and calling all the radio stations we used to get played on and saying now we have something that you can play during the holidays so please book us so we can come to a tour in November and December and this was thinking bigger it was it was a really cool eye opener and it was thrilling to be in the same hotel room for eight weeks it was like unheard of it we was- had,
2: yeah, we had never been able to set up the drums once and just leave them there it was such an incredible luxury and now we're completely addicted to theater
3: <laughs> <laughs> why didn't we think of this before? I know mm-hmm.
2: crazy and when rachel first came up with the idea of the little match girl it was because she had she had listened to our cd called little light and the title track of that cd is very reminiscent of the little match girl to her yeah. And that's where the whole idea came from.
0: All right. So this sounds fascinating. I know I'm I'm really eager to see how this turns out on Thanks. stage. And uh, on a side note, the CD packaging for the actual CD itself is very, very well thought out and creatively designed. So. Thank you. It's worth checking out. And um, where, where and when can people catch Striking 12?
2: Well, we are at the Daryl Roth Theater on Union Square. And we had our first preview on November 6th. The opening day is November 12th. And it runs eight shows a week through New Year's Eve. So you can go to striking12.com to find out information. You can also go to groovelily.com and we have a link that goes right there.
3: Yeah. In the month of December, I think we have shows on Monday nights, so if there's anyone out there who has another show and wants to come see this, that would probably be a good night to do it. Yes. All right,
0: well, we're going to play one more song from Striking 12. You want to set this up a little bit? Sure. This one
2: is...
3: Screwed up people make great art.
2: Yeah. At the the end of the
3: story, I've, I've read the fairy tale, I am a little blown away by the content and I can't imagine who could possibly write something like this who is this crazy Hans Christian Andersen person and and why is he terrorizing little children and Gene in one of his utility infielder roles plays this guy who happens to have taken a class in Scandinavian literature and he expounds on the nature of Hans Christian Andersen in this song. Alright, well thanks for stopping by and I wish you the best of luck with the run. Thank you
2: you so much Michael. All look
5: let me tell you a little something about Hans Christian Andersen, okay? He grew up poor, just a shoemaker's son A lanky kid who had a really big nose Insecure, immature, he was often found Dressing up in girly clothes his father died, and his mother explained that the ice maiden took him away. That little lie made him cry, gave him nightmares, and it haunted him till his dying day. What a shock! Yet yeah, it wound him up inside just like a cuckoo clock. right from the screwed up heart ooh, ooh. Screwed up people bear their souls and that's not
4: always smart Okay So I, I, so what you're saying is What are you saying? Look, just pay attention
3: Okay
5: Now our man Hans had a heart full of love, but his feelings weren't always returned And a clod, he'd make overtures and always end up getting burned. He was afraid of churches, fire, and dark, some disaster would be sure to arrive. Now, our bizarre superstar couldn't sleep because he worried he'd be buried alive. So insane! So he wrote a lot of fairy tales to ease the pain. He Cause screwed up people make great art Imagination off the chart Screwed up people send us postcards From the world apart He created a fantasy world And he got him some great reviews Supernatural stories of snowmen And mermaids and magic shoes but when his characters get what they want There is often a rude surprise Because Hans Christian Andersen looked at the world Who really screwed up Never married and he never had kids So his stories were his legacy Emperor Jude in the nude And a princess who was kept awake all night by a pee On and on Uh, Turning all those ugly ducklings A running start For example Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart He made great art Like Charlie Parker And Virginia Woolf Don't forget Vincent Van Gogh And Janis Joplin Yeah Screw the people, make great art. But Yanni is completely well adjusted. All
4: right, all right, all right. All right.
0: We have TJ and Dave here. From Chicago, they do a weekly stint here in New York as an improv comedy duo. How are you guys doing today? Great, thanks. Good, Michael. Glad to be here. What happens when the lights go down and the audience is sitting at a TJ and Dave show?
6: The anticipation is palpable.
7: Yeah. First of all, they get angry being duped into attending the show. Uh,
6: and then the lights go down, and then they think, when the lights go down, I would imagine they think, uh-huh. And then the lights come back up, and then we're still there. And they, uh, and we will just start out of nothing, uh, begin improvising, just the two of us, without a suggestion. will continue on. Whatever we started with, we'll continue that, and a story will unfold, and different characters in different situations will kind of just reveal themselves. We will disappoint for almost an hour. <laughs> <laughs> so now, do you guys completely off
0: the cuff at when you get on stage, or have you two discussed maybe a brief idea of what you're going to do when you We've really do nothing uh, at all.
6: We really don't uh, pre- prepare, <laughs> prepare in any way. We prepare in no way whatsoever. This is the dream acting yeah, job. It's, it's uh, uh, the best. <laughs> and and you know a lot of people think that it's more difficult to not have prepared, but we honestly believe it would be much more difficult to follow along something that we were trying to do. This is a it's just much easier this way. We we start and pretty much when the lights come
7: up we look at each other. And in that look, or in what posture someone might have, it looks or feels like something already. It looks like, oh, that, you know, this feels like a couple who are just starting their day, and it feels like it's morning, and we just go, go along with that and see where that see where that takes us. And if that happens to be the case, then we'll find out what happens to them that day. Do you tape your shows at all? Have you ever like? Wanted to catch like lightning in a
6: bottle from a particularly great evening, or uh, and, all the shows are at least the ones in Chicago are actually taped. Um, I have seen one of them. I've never watched any
7: of them. <laughs> I've seen two, and uh, partially be- because even as good as it might have felt, you you don't want to watch it and be proven wrong about how good you you felt about it, kind of kind of thing. It's it's very hard to. Uh, also re re uh, established the feel that was
6: in the room in that moment that that evening. It really is kind of particular to the environment, you know, it's it's and it's it's completely disposable. It was for that particular evening with that particular group of people and then it's kind of gone. I do watch them. I I, I mean I have seen those a couple of them and they're they're fine. They stand up but it's just not the same as, you know, it's meant to be theater. Since the show's different completely every single night, do you have a lot of groupies? A lot? <laughs> and and really the term groupie i, I mean, there's there, we have some folks that that are somewhat regular mm-hmm. um and well actually there's some people here in New York that are they that uh, we've seen i think we've seen it every, every every show we've ever done in new york
7: and we're there and we're in chicago the wednesday before we started a thursday run out here i guess just they,
0: to clarify that you do every wednesday in chicago yes Correct. and what theater is that at that's at uh i o i o chicago up in Wrigleyville.
7: <laughs> and you've been
0: doing
6: uh one week in a month here in new york Right, yeah. for the past few weekends, but we've done. We've been here in New York to, at the Barrow Street Theater for. We've. This is, I guess, our, our si- sixth or seventh week that we've done it, it there. And you're going to be continuing to come back one week a month for. The, the, Hopefully, the, until they stop us. The first Thursday of the month, uh, that Thursday through Sunday, we're here. And to your point of, of groupies, not groupies, but we are lucky, and I use this
7: in the best possible way that improvisation. Draws and breeds a lot of dorks, uh, of which we are two of them. And uh, so, thankfully, there there is a committed and and regular following. It and, seems for improvisation, right? And they're
6: music. really interested, especially in Chicago. And the, the the community is growing here in New York too. The Upright Citizens Brigade came here from Chicago and opened up a theater many years ago, about five or six or even more than that, is it? And then from them, two other theaters have splintered off, and that's the Pitt, the People's Improvisational Theater, and uh, the Magnet Theater. And they're all the, doing the, you know... What do you think it is about Chicago
0: that has bred so many important... You know, like the Second City, I'm, I'm
6: guessing that you guys have probably been involved with Second City. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we have. We have. And, yeah, they I, I don't know. I think about that a lot, why Chicago. And I think it's kind of that it's... Under the radar, and you're you're especially at Second City, it, it used to be anyway that you were encouraged to fail. You know, you were encouraged to go out there and do something different. Um, whereas, I, I think in in other places or in other disciplines, you would never be uh, told to do that.
7: I think also perhaps the uh, the availability of of spaces and the affordability of of spaces and stuff as far as Chicago goes if five improvisers in Chicago are like hey what you want to do you want to do a show you can get together find a place to do it and put it up and people and, will come yeah and you can do it for you can put it up for free you, you probably won't make any dough on it but you're also not paying anybody to put your to put your show up so i think that might also breed a certain sensibility it could
6: be a little bit of the kindness of the mid of the midwest as well that it's uh, you know play nice and also it is Uh, that you know the headquarters you know the 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 birthplace of that improvisation that kind of comedy sketch comedy in that form a cabaret like the second city so it has a a history and and therefore the audience is familiar with what it is we're trying to do we don't have to in some regards uh, educate them as to what what it is we're trying to do you both were involved with Second City at completely different times, right? Right. Yep. I was there uh, uh, earlier than TJ back in uh, the 20th century. Uh, boy, remember? I was also there in the previous millennium. Uh huh. I was there in the late 1980s and early 1990s, and uh, TJ was there uh, around around 99, I think, yeah. or something in that. Right decade. around the turn, the big turn, the, mm. the Y2K. Remember that?
7: That was all gear A lot up. of hot bits. <laughs> a lot of hot blackout, Y2K blackouts we were doing. <laughs> blackouts indeed. Uh-huh. Uh, fear.
0: <laughs> so how influential is was your experience with Second City?
6: For me, Second City came on, uh, came uh, I did that after I would stud- started doing impro- improvisation with Del Close, and then I ended up down at Second City with Del directing. And that all kind of is blended together. Second City really spoils you in that you get to do the material you want the way you want. You don't get to do that pretty much anywhere else. Except uh, along the lines of what
7: we're doing, I've... I... Find myself more. I think what Dave would say more personally influenced by the work with Dell. Probably more so my work at uh, my work my my time at at uh, I O, which used to be called Improv Olympic. That the Second City is uh, is is more sketch. You know, things may just live for those four minutes. Whereas with long form improvisation, it's everything. It's longer and it's interconnected, and and that's more along the lines of what of what Dave and Dave and I do. It's not as uh, episodic. No, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah,
6: as, as it's not. Yeah, not as uh, complete and well. Yeah, in long form, it's it that Improv Olympic was founded by Del Close and well, I'm going to go ahead and say that it really? was. Fu- yeah, Del Close and, and Sharna had a theater, and it was Del's way of improvising and doing long form, and that that's influenced me the most, and and I think also T.J.
0: How is the atmosphere at Second City? Is everybody, like, scratching and clawing and biting to be which one is going to be the next one to get on Saturday Night Live? You mean, is there is it real competitive?
3: Yeah.
6: You know, it. I don't know. I haven't been there in a long time. When I was there, it it wasn't so much. It happened sometimes uh, when, in my company, two guys went. It, we didn't ever sense it was... Uh, it didn't feel like that to me. I don't know what it's like now. It seems like it might be more like what you're saying. Back then, we were just thinking... We get to do this and they're paying us? That's ridiculous.
7: It's, uh, I don't know, if, I don't think anyone from my group went as a performer. A couple of folks went as as writers to there or to Conan or Mad uh, even. But it almost seems like that desire will ensure that you never get there. And it always seems the people who are like, man, I could do this forever. This is awesome. Let's do this. Are the people who end up being asked to try out for SNL or to audition for them. But also the the Second City is very, it's pretty widely spread right now. They have casts on a couple of cruises. Ships in uh, in the Caribbean and the Mediterranean, and and so there's a lot of different ways you can work for Second City right now, as opposed to yeah, a back long when time when there it was it just, just these two stages and a touring you know a touring company or, or, or two. But it, it almost that kind of clawing drive will make it so that no one wants to work, work with, with you, you, and then your <laughs> and then your work sucks, you know, because it's plain that people don't want to do scenes with you because you're you're a jagmo. Mm-hmm.
6: <laughs> and right, and the guys that were, that got that went to Saturday Night Live for my cast were great guys, and they just love doing it. So, how long have you been working together as a comedy duo? Four and a half,
0: for about four and a half years. Has it been an enjoyable experience?
7: I'm we're thinking? just about done. I think we've <laughs> yeah, used just yeah. about all of it yeah. up, right?
6: Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> this might be the last. Surah. You were asking how long we're running. Yeah, it might be this weekend. <laughs>
7: <laughs> it's been a, it's been a very nice time, and we've been asked a couple of times before, like uh if you know if we've been friends for you know for a long time we have a, it seems we have or we've been told that we have an easy rapport with each other on stage but for the first year like you said it, if we did 52 shows we'd probably spend a total of about 52 hours with each other yeah we didn't really some, know each other beforehand you know, rehearsals mm-hmm. and stuff like that but it's been a nicely growing uh experience
0: now, do you feel a difference in the crowds between Chicago and New
6: York? Yeah, we do. The place that we, the, the, I don't know if the crowd so much, but this the the evening, the, uh, the the place in Chicago is just like you know we we grew up there in in that theater and so it's really home and physically the set is it's a, a stage that has a six-inch riser and there's people sitting far closer than you are you know we're literally sharing leg room with them and so it's 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 a different feeling we're in the Barrow Street Theater where we're on a stage and it's not our home and so there is a slight difference the audience in Chicago in that particular room is is remarkable they're really patient we're very and, spoiled yeah they're yeah we're spoiled not them they're not spoiled. They're spoiled by us, <laughs> by, by, by getting... <laughs> they by get getting to, Yeah. They're, no, they're, they're, uh, they're, they're really great. And so um, when we come here, it's not our, as you pointed out, it's, it's different all the time. So we see a lot of the same faces in the crowd, and it's really a, a comfortable feeling, whereas here in New York, it's a theater audience. It's just, and we're happy to be doing that, and they seem to be enjoying it as well.
0: Now, do you guys do side projects as well as this in acting?
7: A little bit. Um, I, I've done. Uh, I've been doing commercials for a, a burger chain called Sonic for the last uh, like three or four years. Improvising those. Improvising. We we get to improvise them. Have done. Have gotten lucky enough to get a couple very small roles in a couple of films. Um, a movie called Ice Harvest that was out last year, and I have maybe if they keep everything about uh, 14 seconds in a Stranger Than Fiction, uh, the new Will Ferrell Dustin Hoffman movie. But that's about it over the last few years, I think. And David does outside outside stuff. Dave was uh, Strangers with Candy, the TV show and the film, and,
6: and uh, there, we do uh, I do plays in Chicago and stuff. And we're late at night in Chicago, at 11 o'clock, so we can uh, do other stuff and still make it to the show. And you worked with Steppenwolf, too. I have done Steppenwolf and uh, the Goodman and some of the different theaters in Chicago.
0: Steppenwolf still feel like, does it still have that
6: influential feel that we still all hear about? It's the greatest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's really a blast. They're really nice people, and they do uh, great shows. I love going there to watch stuff. And uh, it's a great place to work. Thank you guys for coming down. Do you guys have a, your own
0: website or anything where people can find out what's always going on with TJ and Dave? There's not a TJ and Dave website. They
6: that they, you, uh, you don't have a MySpace page.
0: You don't have thirteen. I don't have the girls. internet. I we just should
6: get some first
7: computer We should two really weeks get some. Ago.
6: We should. You know what? I will. Uh, I would love for someone to put up a MySpace page for us, and they can reach me at davidpasquazi.com. And I don't have the Internet. As, uh, I just got a... <laughs> the
7: Internet. I, it's a series of tubes. Yeah, don't have this intranet. Uh, <laughs> but I just got a computer and put all my CD music in there. So now I, I have a, a very expensive jukebox in my
6: house mm-hmm.
7: that uh, I don't have to put change in.
6: And, and for the New Yorkers, they can go to uh, barrowstreettheater.com. That's uh, spelled T-R-E. Like the English. Like the English. BarrowStreetTheatre.com. I've always felt more that R-E is the
0: show and E-R is the building. That's kind of how I personally define Oh, is it theater? I, like. yeah. I, I mean, the life official. in the theater is an R-E? Yeah. And I would say uh, then the theater building, this gotcha. is my own personal definition I hold to. And I know a few other that others that match it, but it's nothing So if not after a rule. the show
7: someone says, oh, I had a disappointing experience... In that theater, in it would that be theater, ER, ER, but I in suppose I had a theater. disappointing theater experience. Yeah, this would, this would be an RE. Gotcha. Very nice, yeah. Oh, well, you'll hear that this evening. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah that's, that's when you'll be able to test it.
0: <laughs> All right, well, best of luck, and I know the next time the New Yorkers will be able to catch you is
6: the first weekend in December. Yep, correct. The uh, I believe that's the 7th through the 10th. Yeah. Those days will live in infamy. All right, thanks for coming down. Thank you, Michael.
0: Stephen Cole is the lyricist with Matthew Ward, the composer of a new interactive musical called Piano Bar. We have a full interview with the two of them that will be airing next week, but we didn't have enough time to get the whole interview edited, For this week and plus the episode was jam-packed. But the show is only on for a limited run at the moment, so we wanted at least tease you with one of the songs from the show. This is Matthew Ward playing piano and Stephen Cole singing live right here in the Broadway Bullet Studios, and the song is called Me On
8: Tap. If tonight is our night for letting loose, well then I've got a dream to pursue. Hit it, Randy. Bloody Marys and vodka tonics and beer by the barrels, pouring shots until I could plots as I sing Christmas carols. If Floyd is closing his doors tonight and we're gone with a snap, then from now on you'll see me on tap, 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 me tap my heineken days are finally through and starting tonight this bud is for you what'll you have me on tap standing behind that bar all these years no one knew i had a secret ambition As I sampled apple martinis, the drinks all went to my feet. It was service with a smile, but all the while, behind that bar, it was 42nd Street, and now freedom isn't far. My feet are coming out from behind that bar. And now Johnny really dances and taps away with those tap shoes on. But suddenly there's a phone call from Floyd who owns the bar and he says it's against city ordinance for anyone to tap dance in a piano bar. And he informs one of the wait staff to confiscate Johnny's shoes. Well, what's he going to do without his tap shoes? Well, he figures out a great idea. There are these coins that have been conveniently placed on the tables in the piano bar. And he gets the audience to use the coins tapping on the tables to be his feet, the sound of his feet. And if his feet just happen to move while they're tapping, well, then who's to say it's against the law? So let's give these people some rhythms. We give them shuffle off to buffalo, shuffle off to buffalo. And then the next group, we're going to give a wing. A wing, a wing, a wing, and finally, finally, the third group gets to do those famous Ann Miller fire taps like this. Tippity tappity, tippity tappity, tippity tappity tip. Tippity tappity, tippity tappity, tippity tappity tip. Now, you people, you just save all that because now it's time for me. To sing once more As I sampled Apple martinis The drinks all went to my feet It was service with a smile But all the while Behind that bar It was 42nd Street Bloody Marys and vodka tonics Can make you discover What you wanted to be Was a white bread version Of Savion Glover when filling everyone's glasses Turns to a terrible trap You just gotta break out Dance break Come on, shuffle off to Buffalo And now, a wing, a wing, a wing Come on, Ann Miller Tippity-tappity-tappity-tappity-tappity-tappity-tappity tappity, 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 tappity. Now everybody just do everything together Cause I'm going home So thank you, Floyd For letting the future be me Me on tap, here's me on tap.
0: Piano Bar has three performances this weekend. And they have one more performance on November 30th, so run out and catch it. If you'd like more information, visit BroadwayBullet.com and click on Volume 14 for links. We're going to have another fun live recording as well as an interview with Stephen and Matthew next week. In his 25 years working in the heart of Broadway at The Colony, Marty Cooper has met and seen just about everything, and he likes pretty much everything too and that is why we present a weekly segment called on the positive side.
9: Hi, this is Marty Cooper once again on the positive side. I'm going to reflect back a little bit. New Year's Eve 1975, I was a young whippersnapper well, younger than I am now. And I had a girlfriend at the, time, at the time, and I had a friend who came with me with his girlfriend. We double dated. We came down to New York to try to see a Broadway show. Went to the Schubert Theater. And, of course, Chorus Line, which had just opened, was impossible to get into. So we walked around to 46th Street, the 46th Street Theater, where Chicago was playing. I knew very little about the show. i had never heard the music. Went to the box office and asked if he had anything available. And he says, no, I don't think I have anything for tonight. Then he says, wait, I have four cancellations. They're in the orchestra, row H. If you want them, you got them. Now, mind you, this is New Year's Eve when now most shows will charge you about $500 a ticket. New Year's Eve 1975, I had to slap down an incredible $40 for two tickets. And I was wondering how I'm going to live for the rest of the week, but I made it. So we went into Chicago. It had a couple of unknowns like Cheetah Rivera, Gwen Verdon, and a young fellow named Jerry Orbach. Well, I went mad over the show. In fact, I couldn't wait to get the album, the tape. There was this little Arista cassette tape that used, that I bought, which I wore out finally. Loved the show, was raving about it, and it closed after a little under two years. And I wondered why? Why would this show close? Well, I think probably Chorus Line was such a strong show. This was sort of Chorus Line's uh, bad little sister in some ways. It didn't have that long a run. Uh, at one point, Gwen Verdon was out, so Liza Minnelli took over for a couple of weeks, which was kind of a success. Love the show. Now, let's go forward to February of 1996. My wife reads an ad in the paper that Encores at City Center... Is putting on Chicago. And I said, wow, this is great. You know, and tells me Rein King and B.B. Newworth, James North, Joel Gray. And I said, holy cow, what a great idea. You know, because, of course, this was semi-concert and semi-staged. We had never been to an on-course presentation. Subsequently, we got a, a subscription because we loved every presentation they put on. So my wife called and they said they only have gallery seats, which is third level in this humongous theater. So my wife says, I can't in my right mind, buy tickets in the third level at city center. So I said, my words exactly, buy the tickets... It will become a legend. And a little over 10 years later, it's a legend. And I just want to give uh, Chicago a shout out. It's celebrating its 10th anniversary tonight with a huge all-star benefit. I wish I was there, but I think it's about $1,000 a ticket. I was watching people going in this afternoon, going into the Ambassador. It was the dress rehearsal for tonight's show. I wish them a lot of luck. And to the Weislers. and here's to another 10 years. Great show, great music. Actually, Candor uh, and Ed will be represented once more, and hopefully a hit, called Curtains, later on this year. So lots of luck to you guys. Hope you have a great show tonight. Well, actually, by the time you hear this, tonight will have been over, but I hope it was a great show. On a serious note, I was saddened to learn of the passing of Bob Fennell. He was one of the heads of the publicity office in New York for a bunch of Broadway shows. He founded Bon O'Brien Brown with the two principals a number of years back. I knew him, he was a great guy, and I know the Broadway community is very saddened by his loss. Thank you. And once again, this is Marty Cooper, and I'll see you next week on The Positive Side.
0: On The Positive Side is brought to you by The Colony. In New York City at 49th and Broadway, or online at collymusic.com, you can always say, I found it at The Colony. It's the holiday season in New York, and that means it's time to look for some... Good family things you can bring the whole family to when it comes to theater. Not always an easy task, but TheaterWorks is presenting a new adaptation of Great Expectations, and we have the writer and the director, Bash Doran and Will Pomerantz here with us. How are you doing today? Great. Great. Um, Bash, first off, how did you go about... uh, did you was that something you pitched to Theatre Works, or did they come to you about?
10: Well, Theatre Works approached me initially. They'd read some of my work and they thought I might be a good match for this this project that they have. Possibly because I'm English, I'm, I'm not sure, but um, they, they'd like my work and they asked me if I thought it was possible to do Great Expectations in you know one hour with six actors. And I went away and I had to think and I said, well, it is, but I think it would be better to do it for an hour and a half with seven. And they, they agreed. Was there any me. debate
0: here? No, was, they was agreed. There a push and take? I mean,
10: because I, sh- I you know, it was, <laughs> it was clear that you could do it with those restrictions, but because but they decided that they didn't want to. They, they had a lot of, of commitment to making the best show it could be, and if you make it that short, it, it, it runs the risk of being a lot of running on stage and talking as quickly as you possibly can, and we, and we didn't want to do that. I then pitched how we would do it with uh, this slightly more expansive structure, and they were enthusiastic, and we took it from there.
0: Now I understand this is a rather faithful adaptation.
10: Yes. I haven't put it in the in the modern world in any way.
11: now, will, how did you end up coming on board with the show? I've done a couple of projects for theater works, and they, Thought of me for this project and suggested that Bash and I meet, and we did, and sort of hit it off. And I had read one of her plays they'd given me, and I was very impressed with her work. So I was very, very thrilled to be asked to do it. And Bash had done a very theatrical adaptation of the piece that makes it flow in this beautiful, almost cinematic way, and it has it speaks to me in terms of staging also. So I was very excited to try to match that theatricality if I could in the staging.
10: It was great actually, because when I met with. Will, I think the second time I handed him a draft very nervously, and I said, the thing is, I, I see it as this, this big kind of ballet. And Will said, ah, my background is in dance, and I got terribly excited. And he's made it look, it, it does look like a just a it, sort of movement and words seem to come together in quite an unusual way in the way that he's done it. And I think it's, it's gorgeous. It's just what I'd hoped for.
0: Now, I understand he actually had to uh, vanquish some competition in your mind. <laughs>
10: Well, only uh, only in as much as uh, I had I had uh, suggested somebody sort of because you're often asked to give suggestions, and and the artistic director of Theatre Works, Barbara Pasternak, is a woman who knows her own mind and knows what she wants. And she said, "You must meet with Will Pomerantz. I think he'll knock your socks off." I don't think that was her phrase, but it was along those lines. And so Will and I met, and and we did get along really, really well, and it, it couldn't really have worked out better.
0: Not that Dickens is particularly um, scandalous material, but this is being done as a family presentation were there any concessions you felt you had to make in any way to make it more palatable for the children or more entertaining for the adults
10: why don't you talk first sure sure
11: I mean what's interesting to me is the way that the piece operates on multiple levels and that it's an extremely I think solid piece of theater for anyone adults or kids alike and that actually kids my experience in working with theater for young audiences if it's not good they're just not interested. It doesn't matter if you pitch the material in a certain way. If it's not good craftsmanship at work, they're really not interested. And in the, our experience here, I mean, we have a top-flight group of actors performing, including Kathleen Chalfant, who is one of our great you know, ladies of the New York stage. And everyone of every age responds. You know, adults come up to me afterwards and say, this, this isn't really for kids, is it? It's it's a major piece of work. And we say, yes, of course it is. But of course, yes, it's also for a family audience, because we believe just because you're young doesn't mean you can't see and don't deserve really good theater.
0: So. And, well, not only that, I think it's important to start yeah. bringing because you know, a new audience their first in. experience.
11: Absolutely. Yeah.
10: I think that when I was doing the adaptation, I I was sort of under instructions actually not to make concessions towards exactly. children, and I really found that with great expectations, there there really wasn't much need. It's it's accessible to children because it it has. A protagonist that is a young boy so you sort of you start off well and it's this very classic story of it's quite an American story really of you know really trying to go after what you want and really looking for a lot of material gain and then discovering that that that's not really enough to get you through in life but I think that the thing that makes it particularly accessible to children is that it's on stage I think as a novel Great Expectation you know has obviously has dated to an extent in terms of the language it's very very dense but the story is absolutely captivating so if you can dramatize that story on a stage for children i think that they get they seem to be getting so much out of it and then if they haven't you know looked at the novel might go to it or if they're forced to look at it at school might might go in to approach the text with a feeling of confidence and a feeling that they're already bringing some kind of human understanding to the literature
0: there's obviously been several adaptations of Great Expectations in numerous forms. Right? Did any of that make it? Did any of that get in your uh, way or get in your head when you're trying to do your own adaptation?
10: Well, I always—I've I, done a few adaptations, and I usually do the same thing, which is not to look at any other adaptations until. I'm extremely far in my process. And then it's almost like a procedure of, of, of checking. I've done a reasonably good job. So it's always kind of interesting to see where I've deviated from what other people have done, or I've done the same. And in this case, I was kind of excited because I saw the, the movie, the older movie, and I noticed that uh, I had made sim- many, many similar cuts that had been made to accommodate that screenplay, and, and that made me feel good because I, I know that that movie is is a classic, and it's a film that once I saw it, I I, I like very much.
0: And Will, what is it now with seven actors? I imagine there's a lot of doubling and some there stuff going is, on. There is,
11: there is, and you know, Bash talks about the use of
10: movement, choreography,
11: etc. But uh, you know, the the most astonishing choreography actually happens backstage. <laughs> these people are doing these unbelievable quick changes and huge dresses that have to be you know switched you know quickly and. You know, one actor plays at least seven characters, and but it's wonderful. It's wonderful because it also gives you a chance to see real virtuosity on the part of the ensemble. They they really again they're, I can't speak highly m- enough of them, and they really bring all of these characters wonderfully to life. And there's humor, and there's a, a strong emotional underpinning to the piece as well. So again, I. I'm very proud of the, the work and how theatrical it is. And it has to be, if you're going to do this whole book with seven actors, you have to find a vocabulary yeah. that's theatrical. And,
10: and I think within this condensed time, it's, it's interesting how everything on that stage is doing a good job at telling the story in its own way. So we've also got a beautiful score by Michael Picton. Oh, yeah. and, and and the contribution that makes atmospherically and narratively is, is just extraordinary. It, it re, It's pretty kind of... Old school theatre in that way. It's it's got it's got all the elements, and they all seem to be working organically, and it, it's it's pretty exciting and fun. I haven't seen a show as an audience member like that for for a pretty long time.
11: Yeah, the design elements are quite good. It was the one designer did the set and the costumes, which I think helps give it a cohesiveness. And again, Bash mentioned the score, which is really a really wonderful score. And uh, Michael actually does also does film scoring. He won. Uh, this prestigious contest for film scoring at the Turner Music Channel recently and you know we're just really lucky to have him aboard too
10: I should also mention that there are wigs it's the first time I've ever done a play that's had wigs in them (laughs) and I I never want to go back
0: Now, it's on for a
11: limited run in New York here. Is the show going to be available for, like, regional and community groups it to will, perform? It will tour soon. There is a tour set up that starts, I believe, end of January, beginning of February for several months. You know, it might continue to tour after that, but I think that's it's booked th- from the winter through the spring at this point. Now, is the tour also your direction? It will be, and we'll have to make some uh, adjustments because it's, you know, a uh, touring production is different than a sit-down production as it is here, and... You know, there will be some accommodations that have to be made. We're not going to have as many run crew and all this sort of stuff we have here in wonderful New York.
0: Well, if people are in New York and want to bring their family for the holidays,
11: what dates can they catch this? It runs from now until December 3rd, I believe, is the closing day.
10: Right. And for all our talk of the children, we've decided as a company that children under eight probably shouldn't come because there is a fire on stage. And it it tends to frighten them.
11: Yes. But, you know, the, the ideal age starts around eight. If yeah. You have a very precocious youngster, you could consider. Yeah. But just know that going in. You know, there is some scary stuff in the piece. So.
0: Well, thanks for coming down and speaking with Broadway Bullet before your show. Our pleasure.
10: Thanks for having us. Okay.
0: We're going to play another song for you from Simply Sondheim, a 75th birthday celebration. This little-known song was written by Sondheim when he was just 16, and it's performed by a very young, up-and-coming cabaret performer, Judy Butterfield. That was I'm in Love with a Boy, written when Sondheim was just 16, and performed by Judy Butterfield. You can find out more information by visiting their website at a-jproductions.net. That is a correction. Last week I referred to it as a-jproductions.com. It is not .com, it is .net. My apologies. You should really check out the CD. There's a lot of fantastic stuff on there for all you Sondheim lovers. Steppenwolf Theatre Company is one of the most famous regional theatres in the country, having produced many legendary shows and bringing some very famous actors to everybody's attention in the United States. They continue their series of excellence to this day, and we have their artistic director, Martha Levy, here with us today. How are you doing? Good. Hello, Michael. So, first off, I mean, I think Gary Sinise and John Malkovich are probably two of the most famous names out of the thing, and I believe they're co-founders of Steppenwolf. Well,
12: actually, Gary Sinise, Jeff Perry, and Terry Kinney are the three co-founders, and John was part of the original company.
0: And what are some of the other names that people might recognize that have come through the Steppenwolf ranks?
12: Joan Allen, Lori Metcalf. Oh, gosh. Lois Smith, Austin Pendleton. These are some of the more... Martha Plimpton. These are some of the more recognizable names.
0: And yourself. You've actually came up through the ranks of Steppenwolf as an actress, didn't you?
12: Yes, I did. I I met the company in... Actually, the way that I was introduced to Steppenwolf was I was not long out of undergraduate school at Northwestern where I had been studying theater in Chicago And was looking to take acting classes and sort of stumbled along into Steppenwolf And my first class was with John Malkovich And I I, I got to know the company John was directing a play called Savages by Christopher Hampton at the time And he was looking for a group of people who would serve as this tribe of South American Indians And I was um, one of those
0: and I also understand, I just have to specifically point out this play, because it's actually one of my favorite plays ever. True West by Sam Shepard came out of Steppenwolf.
12: Yes. it it apparently had an original production which was not successful. And then John Malkovich and Gary Sinise performed in the play, brought it here to New York. And it was sort of the first moment that Steppenwolf Theatre Company became known outside of Chicago. And, of course, it, it had a very big impact on John's career.
0: Now I understand that Steppenwolf is kind of taking a new direction in terms of the shows you're bringing to New York City this year doing smaller Mm -hmm. off-Broadway runs Mm -hmm. and I was wondering, you know, what reasons there were, if if there's a specific strategy of going with some of the smaller theaters or if it was something else that prompted a change in, because you know from some of the bigger shows like Metamorphosis and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest revival that you were...
12: Well actually Metamorphosis was a production by Mary Zimmerman who's not a member of our company and that was the Looking Glass Theater that brought that. You know, I would describe it in this way, Michael, that in the past, some of the shows that we've brought to New York, Buried Child, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Grapes of Wrath, they tended to be works of a kind of, well, in the case of Grapes of Wrath, there was an epic scale to that piece. And in the case of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest or Buried Child, they had behind them in both cases Gary Sinise's work, either as a director or as an actor. And, and the scale, the size, the ambition of those productions was large. They were also, in the case of Cuckoo's Nestor Berry Child, known title. More and more over the past, particularly 10 years, and acceleratingly, Steppenwolf has dedicated a lot of our artistic focus on the development of new playwrights. And consequently, that work sometimes does gets bruised in the larger venues. And I can say about the two shows that we have currently running in New York, The Bluest Eye, Livia Diamond's adaptation of Toni Morrison's novel, and Sunset Limited, a small play, a two-hander, by primarily novelist Cormac McCarthy. Those plays played at Steppenwolf in our smaller spaces, as was appropriate to the scale of the work and to the intimacy that is at the heart of both of those stories. And so wanting them to have a future life, it seems only appropriate that they be brought to comparably sized theaters here. I mean, there's something about trying to inflate the, either of those productions to a larger stage that would be, it would be damaging to the works. And so we're very grateful that we're able to bring them to intimate houses here, which, of course, changes the equation, the producing equation relative to, to the theater here.
0: I should mention quickly that both of those shows, if our listeners are listening very quickly, are playing through November 19th and and still be caught.
12: Right. Sunset Limited at the 59 East 59th Street Theater and uh, The Bluest Eye at the Duke Theater here on 42nd Street.
0: Now, do you have any plans for some other productions yet coming to New York? or
12: There aren't specific plans for specific productions. But we, and you know, the way that we do our work, Michael, is that we have always produced it for our audiences at Steppenwolf and for our home at Steppenwolf. And then if it seemed that there was the momentum and the interest to move it, that motivated us. But we, we don't engineer shows to move them. I will say that, you know, in addition to bringing shows to New York, there's been a lot of movement in our shows over the last number of years to other theaters. For instance, our production of After the Quake, Frank Galati, who's one of our company members and a glorious director, adapted Murakami's book of short stories. After its production at Steppenwolf, it moved to the Longmore Theater. And it will be moving this summer to La Jolla and to the Berkeley Rep.
0: Now, when you're picking your shows for the season, how do you decide which ones you're going to step out of or which ones you're going to act in?
12: <laughs> Me? Well, I, you know, listen, I, I'm so fortunate to have a company of just brilliant actors that I always want... I'm looking for the opportunity for them to be on stage. And if I have, you know, if there's a role that seems appropriate, it's also, as the artistic director, it's, you know, I, ha- I have kind of a full plate, and it's a delicious plate, let me tell you. It's so fun to be able to have that relationship to the company. But last year, for instance, I acted in a new play by Don DeLillo called Love, Lies, Bleeding, which w- played in our upstairs theater at Steppenwolf. This is a 300-seat. Theater, that we then moved to the Kennedy Center for a two-week engagement as part of their Fund for New American Plays.
0: Now, how how long did it take before Steppenwolf moved into, I guess, how old is the new facility with your three spaces?
12: We built that theater in 1991, and actually it houses two of our theaters, what we call the Downstairs and the Upstairs Theater. The Downstairs Theater is a 500-seat proscenium. The Upstairs Theater is now a 300-seat proscenium. It has been various things over the course of its lifetime. It was actually constructed originally as a large rehearsal room, and we produced in it for many years as a flexible space of varying house count. And it, the, two seasons ago, we dedicated it to this proscenium configuration and sort of enhanced the, both audience and stage house amenities. And then our third space, the Garage Theater, is actually in a building just adjacent to those two main theaters in a garage, actually.
0: Now, how much of your audience is made up of uh, subscription holders and how much is...
12: Gosh, that's, you know, I believe we're probably about 70% sixty five seventy five seventy percent subscribe and then that is in on our subscription series and then but there are these other streams of programming we have a visiting a visiting companies initiative where we invite young companies into either the garage or the upstairs space to produce their own work. We also the whole garage series which features new work including a repertory of three new plays during the summer none of that work is subscribed so that's all those are all single ticket audience members
0: now uh, one thing I wanted to discuss a little bit that I've seen it's a quote from one of your colleagues when in the one of the papers here when you were sh- looking for a place for some of the shows that you're putting on in New York mm-hmm. was a comment that 59 East 59th was great because they would let you just present and that so many of the off-Broadway houses in particular were more interested in producing than presenting
1: mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. and and is this a trend? Because I I sensed that there were a lot of the houses were getting more into the producing angle, but I thought it was just simply because there weren't shows that were wanting to come in. But if they're not open to somebody with Steppenwolf's you know legendary quality doing what they do best, that strikes me as not a healthy situation. For New York well, theaters. you know,
12: if I, if I understand it properly, if a, a theater is producing a show, they're taking a financial risk on it. And therefore, they, in order to protect that risk, they want to have agency in terms of the decision-making, what they think will help the show be successful in terms of sales. And, you know, in that case, they are going to want to make decisions that they feel... Guarantee a greater return on their investment. And generally, I mean, I'm not saying anything new. This is certainly true in the Broadway equation as well. They feel like the thing that will help sell tickets is some unknown quantity, be that title of the play, playwright, the casting. You know, and that's where the it becomes most apparent. I mean, this is why that, you know, it's commonly understood that in Broadway, what is required with a play is that there be alluring casting, which means known casting. And I think, you know, that consciousness is, is more deeply infiltrating off-Broadway as well, that in order to make a play in an off-Broadway space where there have to be these known elements. I think some, you know, the, the great gift of a relationship with with a place like 59, well, not with a place like, but with 59 East 59th Street, is that they're very interested in the partnership with us as a company, and they're very interested in our artistic decision-making. But it's a different financial equation as well from having a, a producer.
0: But do you think that situation is is healthy to have the theaters wanting to have that much control?
12: Well, you know, I mean, I I don't. I know. mean,
0: I can fully understand it if they have a space sitting empty and they're trying to bring something in right. but if there's a good option you know, and somebody's willing to pay the rent you know, and they're not taking a financial risk because somebody's willing to pay the rent
12: well then they're a pre- presenter mm-hmm. and the question is but then all of the financial risk is let's say in the case of Mike, then, then we're taking all of the financial risk that hasn't been the way that Step Wolf has come into New York Okay, we've had producers and we've been I mean the kind of unusual fact of our being produced in New York is that we've tended to be able to do that with our own artistic decision making intact. And and the relationship with 59 East 59th is different in that we took What we considered was a moderate risk. In other words, we undertook the cost of moving the production, but we felt it would be, you know, a a valuable thing to do. And I think both Fifty Nineties, Fifty Ninth, and Steppenwolf have been very gratified by the relationship.
0: So, what are some of the shows coming up at Steppenwolf in Chicago that you're most excited about?
12: Well, we have some terrific stuff happening this season. Soon, we will December tenth. We'll be opening a new play by. Melinda Lopez called Sonia Flew. It had a production previously at the Huntington Theater in Boston, and it's a beautiful, beautiful play. about she, Melinda herself is a Cuban-American, and she writes about the Pedro Pan experience in Cuba in the 1960s coming to America. And something I'm really excited about is that we're doing a new play by one of our company members, Tracy Letts. He's known to New York audiences for his productions of Killer Joe, his plays Killer Joe and Bug, which played at the Barrow Street for a long time last year. We've produced his play Man from Nebraska, which was one of the finalists for the Pulitzer in that year. And the new play August Osage County, which is being directed by our ensemble member Anna Shapiro, is a large, I mean, it's a three-act family epic, and it's going to be peopled by mostly ensemble members. I think we'll probably have more ensemble members in this production than we've had in years and years in a single play, so it's really exciting.
0: Now, with with your focus on developing so many original plays and, and new plays, are are you still finding, are there, besides New York, are like a lot of regional and community theaters discovering the plays that you present and giving yeah. the author's life.
12: Yeah, actually, I mean, that's been, that's been terrific. I mean, for instance, The Pain and the Itch by Bruce Norris. We've produced five of Bruce's plays, and he recently had his debut here in New York at Playwrights Horizon with a play that Steppenwolf originally produced, The Pain and the Itch. Orson Shadow, by our company member, Austin Pendleton, who's acting in Sunset Limited, had a had a very vigorous life after its time at Steppenwolf, its premiere at Steppenwolf, including at the Barrow Street Theater here in New York. Much of our work has gone on to be produced elsewhere.
11: And
0: as far as your wonderful acting company, what does it take to get involved in the Steppenwolf? Is it a straight-up audition, or well, is it a lot well, of references too? And
12: Well, to become a company member is a different equation from acting at our theater. I mean, the the sort of first choice in terms of our actors and our directors are our company members. We're 35 ensemble members who are actors, directors, playwrights, adapters of literature for the stage, some of those multiply. And when we do a production, we first go out to them to act in the in the plays, and then we audition in Chicago, sometimes in New York, for those roles. And in terms of becoming a company member, that's a, a sort of unspecified process how that happens, but it but it is based on repeated creative relationships with actors and directors, and a like mindedness about the work and about each other as sort of citizens in the collective.
0: Now, you've been artistic director for 10 years now, right? And that's the longest that anybody's done the show. Are you still feeling just as excited about it today as you were on day one?
12: I really am. In fact, more so. I was just thinking, this begins my 11th season. And the challenges that are in front of us as a company, as a company that has... Grown and at this moment in its life, and given the, the the current ecology of not-for-profit theater, there are a lot of challenges, but they're ones that excite me, and I think excite us collectively as an ensemble and a staff. So I just thrilled to the idea of helping to be a steward to the theater in the next phase of its life.
0: Now, I'm sure there's a lot of artists, you know, actors, performers, directors in New York and probably elsewhere who are wondering if it's possible to make a living at their craft someplace else. Uh, What is it financially like for artists in Chicago? Is there the opportunity for them to make their living doing their craft?
12: Doing strictly stage work, I think they would probably say not. Or if so, it's a a very (coughs) modest living. There is other work in Chicago in terms of, I mean, some, some of the actors, and directors with whom we work, and designers, our teachers as well, and then there is a there's a commercial life there in Chicago, be it for advertisement, you know, or or also there are films and television series that shoot there sometimes. So that's another avenue. And then some of our actors, that which is to say, Chicago-based actors, travel elsewhere, work in regional theater.
0: So, but they always come home, right? Uh,
12: I. <laughs> Yeah, I hope so.
0: Well, again, once again, if you're listening quick, you can catch the Sunset Limited and... Blue Bluest Eye. ...through November 19th, and keep a lookout for some more great Steppenwolf productions to come through New York. And if you're listening in Chicago or visiting Chicago, make sure you catch one of the landmarks of Chicago, especially when it comes to theater, Steppenwolf.
12: And you can go to our website, www.steppenwolf.com, or,
0: and I guess to close it off, I, I've heard rumors either way. Is there any connection with the name of the theater company and the band?
12: Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> the the founders claimed that they were not motivated by the band, but rather by the Hermann Hesse novel. All
0: right. Well, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Well, now I've got a couple choice pieces of news from the BroadwayWorld.com news desk. First off, Sasha Baron Cohen, whose film Borat has become a pop culture phenomenon over the last two weeks, has been confirmed to play the role of duplicitous Barbara Pirelli in the upcoming DreamWorks film version of Sweeney Todd. He joins the previously announced Johnny Depp in the title role and Helena Bonham Carter as Mrs. Lovett. Baron Cohen, who is British, plays ignorant Eastern European reporter Borat, a character from his hit The Ali G Show in the smash film Borat, Cultural Learnings of America, for Make Benefit Glorious Nation of Kazakhstan, which he co-wrote. His other film credits include Madagascar and Talladega Nights, while other TV credits include Curb Your Enthusiasm. The film adaptation of Stephen Sondheim's Sweeney Todd, directed by Tim Burton, will begin filming in February of 2007. And then also... According to the San Diego Union Tribune's Anne-Marie Welsh, Tony Award winner John Doyle will follow up the Broadway revival of Company with a production of the colorful 1980 musical Barnum. Barnum was recently added to the 2007 lineup of the Old Globe Theater in San Diego. We have been tracking John Doyle since everybody fell in love with his Sweeney Todd. We wanted to do a musical revival, and this is a show that has not had a major rethinking. It fits John's vision as he'll be imagining it with the actors also playing musical instruments, said Louis Spisto, executive director of The Globe. Barnum will open on July 12th and run through August 19th. If you're looking for more information on those stories or on a lot of other stuff, you can go to broadwayworld.com. While we are still working on figuring out how to revive the stump the staff, the Drama Bookshop are still great supporters of us, and they're incredibly knowledgeable. If you're in New York, you can visit them on 40th Street between 7th and 8th Avenue or online at dramabookshop.com. They've got everything you need when it comes to books and theater. D-A-A-Bosch sent me an email at broadwaybullet at NextbigHit.com with a couple of great suggestions for what I can do with this show in the future, and I'm working on implementing those. If anybody else has any ideas, please feel free to email me at broadwaybullet at nextbighit.com. I'll be back with you next week, but until then, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and thanks for hopping on board the Broadway Bullet.